Good evening, folks, and welcome to another episode of Revisiting the Oscars. Uh, and I feel like I'm saying this in every episode now, but we firstly apologise for the delay since the last one. But we have a very good excuse this time in that there has been wall-to-wall football and, uh, being honest, I've not watched many films, so it's taken a bit of time to get through this one. Squeezing the green mile in and it's, it's whole three hours in amongst the football has not been the, the easiest thing to do, but... We're back with a episode just before Christmas talking about 1999. So hope you're you're glad to have us back, and uh, we're going to go through some decent films today, and some maybe not so decent ones, but certainly ones with a lot of talking points. As usual, it's me, your host Luke Watson, joined by my two co-hosts Richard Mason and Scott Bingham. Are, are we feeling the festive spirit, folks? <laughs> Always a bit like Bad Santa. Can't wait to get my <laughs> Santa costume on. <laughs> uh, and cause, cause some bother. I don't feel festive at all, partly because we've had decorators in the flat and no tree up, so no festivities here. Just feels like it could be. A, a <laughs> Isn't that a common happening. theme with you? I think I remember what? this from last year when, Maybe, albeit yeah. you lived in a different place. I, I just remember there was absolutely hee haw behind you. That, uh, yeah, well, so this time last year, I'd just moved back from Dublin, so probably we couldn't be asked putting a tree up. And this year, there's a guy in that room painting it, so. He doesn't, want a, he doesn't want a tree. Is it Santa? <laughs> <laughs> Painting it in red and white stripes. I was like, mate, have a I, day off. <laughs> I'm a little bit like that as well, Mason. That I think you're the same as me in that you don't spend Christmas where you live. So it kind of feels like it's a bit of wasted effort having all the, all the Christmas decorations up when you're not even going to be there. Exactly. So I'm thinking about putting it up on Wednesday when the decorators finish, but then it's like Christmas three days later. So what's the point? That sounds like me. What what are you doing for Christmas, Bingham? So I'm staying down here. Staying down here. Oh, there's Gary's having his having his say if you can hear that. I don't know what he's barking at, but he's barking at something. Um Santa. Santa's coming down the chimney. <laughs> <laughs> he's early. <laughs> um yeah, so I'm staying down here. Uh, Sarah's mum and her granddad and that coming round and then I'm going back up to Scotland on Boxing Day for a few days. Very uh, good. What about you? Uh, I've got to go back to Stirling on Christmas Eve. Be there a couple of days. Then I'll I'll also be down in Ayrshire, similar time as you, um, down at oh. Kerry's folks. So yeah, down there for a couple of days, and then oh, so is that a visit to the deepest, darkest Ayrshire's? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not in that posh part of Ayrshire that that you you hail from, Bingham. Um, I'll be down in <laughs> deepest, darkest East Ayrshire. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I, that being, this just sounds like a catch-up between mates. I am going to bring it back to film, because over Christmas, I, uh, I actually will be going to um, Pinewood Studios, Harry Potter Studio Tour. So ah, that's, that's quite festive. I imagine that will be pretty uh, Christmassy. So all the Christmas that's not in the flat will be uh, taken up by uh, a bit of Harry, a bit of a festive butterbeer. bit of Harry Potter. Yeah, just to, just to pre-warn you, the butterbeer does not have alcohol in it, so I would recommend taking a hip flask with some vodka. <laughs> yeah, that's what Harry did. I've Harry. <laughs> We're covering 1999 today. I think we covered this last time, Mason, but you did just pick this because you wanted to hear the Prince song play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what a tune. And it, it turns out from, I mean, the five films we've got to watch, ones that I think have kind of seeped over into becoming modern classics, people seem to have seen them. Uh, but also, I mean, we'll get into that, but the top ten this year is full of a lot of decent films. There's a lot of good films out this year. It was a golden time for running about Wild Abandon, wasn't it? I just remember playing football constantly. FIFA 99, you know, finished playing a bit of FIFA, 
then watch like just a long list of class films. Yeah, it was indeed good time. So, are we going to find out about that good time? Maybe we'll have a sunnier than usual blast from the past. Come closer. Come closer. So close your eyes and visualise this. Say say 2000-00, party over is out of time. So tonight I'm going to party like it's 1999. <laughs> <clears throat> the mic stand collapses. A hooch bottle smashes off the stage and you get tanned in the forehead by a new Euro coin. Even the big blonde barmaid who was giving you the eye all night looks away disgusted as blood pishes down your head like a drunken disorderly you, Dallas. Ushered off the karaoke stage by security, a voice like a goblin and a breath that smells like a whitey. Your new bleach blonde hairdo looks ridiculous. Less real Slim Shady and more Slim Shady Lady. Don't worry, it's the final hurrah, the swan song, the last dance for you, me and everyone as the world meets a cruel and crippling end. Death by Y2K, the millennium bug. <laughs> Your bucket list is almost complete. A skydive in front of a solar eclipse, no less, tick. Start a new business, peer-to-peer music sharing platform, Napster, tick. Star in a music video, dancing out your nut to praise you by Fatboy Slim, tick. You even managed an interview with a football manager, despite it being fucking Glenn Hoddle who told everyone that he believed those with disabilities were painful sins in previous <laughs> life. <laughs> anyway, it's almost time as the countdown begins. You're dressed in the family best. Nine, eight, seven. Black suit, black tie and white shirt. Six, five, four. An emo on the night, a dead man in the morning. Three, two, one. There we go. Oh, I was oh. expecting a big bang at the end there. Just like just like the Y3K bug. Nothing happened at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's mental that people genuinely thought that all, like, all computers were going to crash and <laughs> yeah. nothing was going to work. All because the, the counter would just switch over to another millennium. Yeah, you wonder how much money was spent on that. Because I remember... Like, I remember getting leaflets through the door, like warning you about the, the Millennium Bug. Uh, I was reading that Time Magazine had a whole new office set up with a whole load of computers in it, like just waiting on standby in case the whole world did collapse, and then just nothing happened. Yeah. Do you remember where you were on Millennium Eve? Oh, I, think I think I was in my house. I'm pretty sure we'd have been at a New Year's thing that Mum and Dad used to take us to. It was only like 11. Yeah. Then. You were probably allowed out drinking, Mason. <laughs> yeah, you're allowed out drinking at 11 in Wigan. <laughs> 11's late. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People are having to go at you in the street if you've not got a uh, bottle of Lee WKD in your hand. Uh, I would have been at... Uh, yeah, actually, I, f- I forgot then that this is being recorded and put out, so I'm not going to say what I was going to say there. Oh. <laughs> I'll reveal oh. it after the podcast finishes recording. Leave that one hanging for the listeners as to what I was doing on Millennium Eve. Maybe that's uh, one for the post bag for for, for next time around. Oh, yeah. uh, if you've got, a, if anyone can guess what Mason was up to, uh, please write <laughs> in. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. 
So it's a 1999 then uh, in terms of movies. We've already touched on the fact it's a pretty, pretty good year. So before we get into the, the five films nominated for Best Picture, usually we go for the top five, but there's actually quite a lot in the top ten. So what I might do is I might just go from ten to six and then pause for comment on any of the films Let's that you wish to do. Um, and then we'll go into the, the top five in a bit more detail. So... 1999, highest grossing films. Number 10, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Number 9, American Beauty. Number 8, The World Is Not Enough. Number 7, Notting Hill. And number 6, The Mummy. Any thoughts on those films in particular? Austin Powers is the one that sticks out, doesn't it? I mean, I, I don't know whether 11 is like the perfect age, but there felt like absolutely tons of films of that kind of... Yeah. Um, genre, if you like, or that type of style that were out at the time, and there, it was constant play, playground sort of laughs and chats amongst folk, with just it's, everyone it's, parodying the lines and everything. I was going to say, is a spy who shagged me the one with Fat Bastard? <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is, he, is he in that or he's in all of them? That's got the, the fat Scottish guy. You have to admire a film just putting the word shagged in its title. <laughs> I mean, I don't imagine that you would do that these days. Yeah, to have an Austin Powers like James Bond spoof and a James Bond in the top ten as well. Although the world is not enough, I would say not one of the finer James Bonds. See, see, I've got I've got quite a lot of fondness for this film. I'm not going to say it's a it's a good film, but it's probably the age that I was at. I, I like the Brosnan films in general. That that was the the James Bond that I grew up with. It's not the one that's the inv- it's not the one that's got the invisible car, is it? No, that's die another day. Th- this that's one, die another day. This yeah, one is a, a baldy. The baddie's a baldy Robert Carlyle. <laughs> <laughs> See, we remember there's a bit on a like a, a kind of sinking ship underwater. Obviously, everybody try to copy Titanic. <laughs> oh yeah, I I think it's it okay. one. Is it one with Denise Richards playing that character called Christmas? Yeah. Well, the only memory I have of her is that after Bond shagged her, he then says, oh, so it's true. It's not true that Christmas comes once a year. <laughs> <laughs> that is in this line. It's, it's terrible. Clearly, they've retro, they've given her that name just so he could squeeze that line in. I would add a thought a pun aficionado as yourself, Mason, would have appreciated that Oh, yeah, that yeah I mean, Brosnan delivers it with a, a, a nice little wink, gl- glint in his eye. He knows how to deliver a line, does Brosnan. <laughs> Cool. So then, heading into the top five, um, number five, Tarzan. Now, we were reflecting earlier, Mason, I don't think either of us have seen this, no. but I know one person that will have seen it, and it must be yeah. uh, Miss, Mrs. Sarah Bingham, surely. Does she have any thoughts on Tarzan? Oh, I don't know, actually. I forgot to ask her, and she's literally just walked out the door, so we're going to have to leave that one hanging. <laughs> leave that in suspense. Well, it didn't make her top five Disney films, so I'm guessing yeah. it's not high up her list. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not uh, made her top five, I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, number four, The Matrix. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, at the age of 11, I'm pretty sure I watched it, but it was probably about five years later that I actually managed to piece any of it together. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the, the Matrix actually won four Oscars, all in the the technical categories. So won quite a few awards. I, I actually saw it at the cinema maybe like three or four years ago. Uh, twenty, well, it would have been twenty nineteen because it would have been the twentieth mm. anniversary of it, and I actually thought it stood up quite well. Um, still really enjoyed it. I've never seen any of the sequels, so I have no desire to ever see. Any I think of them. we've covered the sequels before because they must have been in the top ten when we've done one of the other years. And yeah. general general consensus is Matrix is a bit of a cult classic. And all the sequels are shite. I've seen I've seen all the sequels except for the most recent one, and they were shite. But the first one's superb. Number three, Toy Story two. 
Yeah, well, it's just an example of a run of films where the sequel definitely isn't better than the original. Oh, I don't know. I think I quite like Toy Story 2 is the one with the chicken man. That's It's got Stinky Pete. Like yeah, this Prospector is... Pete. It's set in the toy store. I think Toy Story 2 Big is Al's better than Big Al's Toy Barn. Yeah, that's brilliant. And you get oh. Jessie the Cowgirl. You have her little backstory, which is a bit of a tearjerker. Yeah, I'm afraid that I'm... Toy Story 2 is better than Toy Story for me. Oh, fuck off. No way. <laughs> Absolutely not. I think they're both chance. quite good. I'm not sure I would pick between them. Number two, The Sixth Sense. We're going to talk about that very soon. And then number one, Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Still a bit traumatised from Jar Jar Binks, I must say. I mean, well, I, I, did, I did write this in my notes when talking about Hayley Joel Osment, who's in The Sixth Sense and is excellent child actor. Whereas your man who plays Anakin Skywalker, the kid who plays him, is one of the... I don't even know who the kid is now, but he's one of the most annoying children on the screen there ever is. Awful. In an awful film, he managed to be even more awful for me than Jar Jar Binks. It's not a great film. Jake Lloyd is the actor that you're thinking of. What's, um, what's he doing now, Jake Lloyd? Uh, safe to say, I'm pretty sure he has not really acted in anything since. Uh, just Oh, God. Uh, I've just brought up his Wikipedia. He looks like AJ from The Sopranos in his mugshot. Personal life, legal troubles. <laughs> that's that's that category. He acted in nothing past 2001, which, yeah, not a no. surprise. I, I mean, it's, a, it's basically a toy... Advert masquerading as a movie. I think like the, the other two yes. prequels yeah. are a little bit better. Still not brilliant, but yeah, this one's really rubbish. I think though, with the Phantom Menace, am I right in saying that there was no Star Wars films for ages? That was the first one in quite a long time, yeah, about fifteen years or so. Yeah, so I quite I quite liked this one because you had a bunch of fucking geeky. Like Star Wars fanatics really, really looking forward to a new Star Wars film, and it was absolutely shite, and they all hated it. It was brilliant. <laughs> I thought you hadn't seen any of the Star Wars Bingham, but you have seen this. Yeah, I've seen this one because my um, uncle, I remember it when it came out, there's a big hoo ha about it, and I've watched it somewhere when I was a kid, and I was like, this is rubbish. Aye, it's, it is rubbish. That is absolutely the case. This, now, we said this year was pretty good. I've got a massive list of other films, which we would be here all day going on about them, but I'm going to pull out a couple and then throw over to yourselves. Being John Malkovich, got yeah. Best Director nod, Best Original Screenplay nod, didn't get a Best Picture nod, sadly, because I would love to have delved into this one in a bit more detail. Absolutely love this film. Absolute genius. Definitely a little bit overlooked, but it's one of those films that people look back on as a genuinely wild original piece of work. <laughs> yeah, big Kaufman, isn't it? Yeah, big, big crazy Kaufman. Is it the scene, scene that it's always... It's not for me, I'm afraid. You're not, not a fan of these? What? No, no, it's just, is it not a bit pretentious? Eh, I mean, maybe, but it's great. <laughs> How can you not love a scene when John Malkovich goes inside his own head and everybody... Yeah, but Malkovich, head... Malkovich, Malkovich. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's absolute genius. <laughs> so they obviously made it with John Malkovich in mind. I would be interested to yeah. see what other actors could have played that role. Yeah, if they'd sent him the script, and I was like, um, listen, mate, we've written a film called being John Malkovich. Do you want to be in it? And he's like, nah. <laughs> nah, M- move over. Um, and then the other one that I'll pull out is um, this year saw the best ever movie musical come out, and you will surely remember this, Mason, because you are a big movie musical fan. Go on. It's South Park, Bigger, Longer and Uncut. It's the greatest music- movie musical of all time. Are we having that as a musical? 
I guess it's got songs in it. Yes, definitely, definitely a musical. It's a shame that there's uh, only grainy footage of this, but one of the songs from it that got nominated for Best Original Song is performed at the Oscars by Robin Williams. (laughs) But the footage on YouTube is pretty crap. It's a shame. I think think it's a great film, but I love South Park. (laughs) Which song got nominated? Is it the Canada one? Blame Canada, yeah. That got nominated. Yeah, Blame Canada, yeah. Oh uh, yeah, I had a Canadian science teacher at the time who was filling in for like long term illness, and she she like left crying in the classroom and was off for ages because everyone just kept shouting "Blame Canada." At her. Um, <laughs> oh, what's what's the plot of this film? What happens? I mean, much like every set, it's not it's, the plot's not the least important thing. I appreciate Canada and America go to war with each other. And Satan gets involved with Saddam Hussein, <laughs> and it's just got a lot of daft songs. And the kids are somehow involved in it from South Park. It's it's very daft, but the songs are good, and it's fair enough. It's quite enjoyable, in my opinion. I was being slightly facetious. It's uh, it's probably not quite up there with Singing in the Rain, but um, to my taste, it's very enjoyable. And the, the two writers did go on to make Book of Mormon, which is arguably one of the greatest musicals that they. You know, that there's been so. Yeah, they're they're they're, t- they're talented. Got, talented. This was their, this was the they've got form anyway. Lost best original song to absolute Phil Collins dirge from Tarzan. Sadly, but yeah, we, we know that best song tends to give awards out to absolute shite. To year Disney, on year. yeah. <laughs> there was loads when I looked through the the list. The, the the kind of odd one that I'd pull out that I vaguely remember seeing, but I just remember it being weird. And there was quite a lot of films like that. Uh, including one in the top five is Office Space so it's like a dark it's really weird dark comedy I can't remember exactly who's even in it to be honest Jennifer Aniston Jennifer Aniston in it yeah and it's there was loads of films at this time where uh, and a bit like one of which we'll come on to speak about where there was Americans in Hollywood making they'd they'd realised the dream of a 95 job was pretty grim reality for some people so there was a lot of films which pulled sort of or, or had a bit, made a bit of fun out of 95 jobs and trying to escape from the grim reality of just working um, and this was one of them I, it was I've, really funny I've never heard of this film and I've just googled it and I don't even recognise the poster oh, I, I, think, I think anybody as as we all have that's worked in an office will relate to it gets that malaise of working in an office quite quite well a couple of years before uh, the office debuted, Jennifer Aniston uh, must have been massive in 1999 as well. I can't believe yeah, she, she must have been a big, a big pull for the, the film. Yeah. So it's like Ron Livingston, who I think is best known for Band of Brothers, is the lead. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. it's all like character actors, but it's written by yeah. the uh, guy Mike Judge that did like Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill, a few other things. It'll um, go down pretty well with you, Mason, because it sneaks in at 89 minutes. Oh, lovely. <laughs> So it's a short one. Um, you also had this year um, lots of like teen movies this year. There was loads when I was looking at it. American Pie being the probably the, the most memorable one that everyone will remember. But it was also like Ten Things I Hate About You, Cruel Intentions, Never Been Kissed. She's all that. Loads of teen comedies this year. I can't remember the last time there was a good teen comedy. Yeah, they go back to super bad. Yeah, teen comedies um, like that are a common. Uh, choice in here, which is a uh, like well, used to be like a you know a come down a come down Sunday, uh, where you just go through tons of teen comedies. I've seen American Pie, God knows how many times. You know, Road Trip, 
and ten things ahead of you. Super bad. They all go on to the to the extent (laughs) where trip is so shit. It's funny though. (laughs) It's so shit though. Um, Well, I actually think I might have seen all teen comedies in existence. Even the one that. uh, what's that? The Wheatus song? I watched the teen comedy that, that that's from. The oh, Teenage Dirtbag? What is yeah, that Yeah, Teenage Dirtbag. Um, oh, I can't remember. I watched, it, I watched it not that long ago. It's not very good. It's got the guy from American Pie in it. Oh, but one of those ones that tried to like cash in on the success yeah. of American Pie. I mean, they must t- still make teen comedies, but just obviously we're not the did- target audience anymore, so we're not, we don't watch them. There's genuinely been like American Pie, so there was four films in total, I think, that went into cinemas, but there's been absolutely loads that just went straight to DVD, and I think the only common denominator is that Jim's dad uh, is in the mall. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh, which is pretty great. <laughs> I, I just remember that, because being like 11 at the time, you, you couldn't get in to see these films, but you just persuade parents to like rent them when they were out on video, so yeah. you'd be able to watch them at home. Thing is, like in Scotland, like if you went to school and you, it got to the point where if you hadn't seen the American Pie, you get the piss ripped out of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, you'd have to see it somewhere. But yeah, quite a lot, of, a lot of good films, and that's without even touching on things like Fight Club, for example. But there's five other films for us to go to, and before we do that, I believe there might be a couple of entries in the post bag. Oh. Am I correct in that thinking? Yeah, there's a post baggy. There's a post baggy. Let's see what's in there. So it's our good friend, the arrogant ambassador. Quite a short one, this. So he's changing from his paragraphs that he's given us before. He said, I'm glad you're covering The Green Mile this year. I love that film, which is a bit positive for him. And I love imagining it's one of you getting the electric chair with no sponge. Oh, that's a very, very not very festive, is it? Arrogant ambassador. I've heard yeah, of people that I've heard of people that hate watch TV programs and movies, but I've never heard of a hate listen before. <laughs> I, I know. Unfortunately, I don't think he's been balanced out by the other contributor, Skidmark City, this time. He's this fuck all from him. He's went missing. Yeah, maybe forgot that we're still doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll catch, catch up with him next time. Yeah, if you're listening, write us write us a letter. <laughs> um, okay, folks, right, five films that we're going to go through today. We're going to go through The Sixth Sense, The Insider, The Cider House Rules, The Green Mile, and to ruin the theme of every film starting with The American Beauty. This. So, we're going to start with the, the I See Dead People film. That is The Sixth Sense. I see dead people. In your dreams? While you're awake? Dead people like in graves and coffins? Walking around like regular people. They don't see each other. They only see what they want to see. They don't know they're dead. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. Ooh, that was quite chilling, that, wasn't it? So the, turn the, the light sec- on. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
It's a Sixth Sense, written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, starring Bruce Willis and Hayley Joe Osment. Uh, like we kind of touched on it earlier, but this was another one of these films that, that and there was a lot of them in 1999, which it was an enormous box office hit. It was just a bit of a phenomenon. I remember loads of chat about it when I was at school. You know, they had folk walking around doing the I see dead people, which we just listened to there. And it had quite a big impact on popular culture, uh, probably along with Blair Witch Project, which must have been in a, in a similar year. Same year. Uh, the same year. Well, there we go. And they were just a massive cultural hit in 1999. And it came out of nowhere. So M. Night Shyamalan, I knew this was his, I thought this was his first film, but it wasn't. He did Wide Awake, which I'd never heard of. And he wrote Stuart Little. <laughs> So what? Um, <laughs> yes. No way! What's the twist in Stuart Little? He's actually a human. <laughs> I, I mean, this is, if, if, if the, the mouse does talk, so yeah, well, true, pretty twisty. True. So like, yeah, he done bit little that come out. So this came out of the blue, um, and at the time it was almost genre defined. So it's not really a conventional thriller, and it's not really a conventional horror. Um, but it's more of a ghost story. So what what's it about, uh, before I go on to what, what I think of it? So it tells a tale of child psychiatrist Dr Malcolm Crow, which is Bruce Willis. He takes on a new case to help a kid, which is Haley Joel Osment. Uh, and the kid's problem, as we heard in that clip, is he has an infliction of seeing dead people walking about the house, you know, juking about at school, and affectionately, uh, effectively torturing his life. And Malcolm helps him, as he sees it's a way to write, let's just say, to write a wrong of the past. And throughout this, we have themes of faith, love, marriage, and quite a lot of fear explored, not just on ghosts, but also on the past haunting you. Now, I was going to do this little skit without mentioning the twist, but it's fucking impossible, basically, because this whole film is about the twist, and it's probably the most famous, one of the most famous twists of all time. Uh, And I'll admit, on first watch, um, back when I was 11 or 12, whenever I was, I seen it, I was completely blindsided by it, despite the fact it literally stares you in the face. I don't think this needs a spoiler klaxon, to be honest, because everyone nah. has seen this. If you, if, um, yeah, you've, you've seen this, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, we watch Malcolm being shot quite clearly at the start. We see subsequent conversations between him and the kid, we also see very one-sided conversations, which you don't really recognise at the time. And that is all because Dr. Malcolm's actually been dead for the whole film. And even he doesn't know it. Now, I've mentioned before that I think the twist is the absolute crux to this. And I think when you know the twist, I think the value in the rewatch is really quite limited. I felt it really felt quite dated to me. And the dialogue was pretty clumsy at points, which isn't an uncommon theme across M. Night Shyamalan's films. And I, I, I was, didn't think there was much else here. So then I sort of thought, is it really fair where I'm saying a film is famous for one of the best twists of all time to not judge it on its overall merits? So I thought, right, let's watch this one, knowing the twist, and just pick as many holes in it as possible. And by God, there's a lot. Like I'd said, the twist is that Malcolm doesn't know he's a ghost. But how the fuck not? Like, there is so many <laughs> examples of why... He, why has he never figured this out? So, there is numerous scenes where his wife doesn't talk to him. Now, he's been dead, like, a year, according to the, the sort of time that passes from the initial incident that we see. Yeah, he's still not figured it out. He doesn't get angry. He just does nothing. She just completely ignores him. 
so I, you've got to think I'd be a wee bit suspicious. So okay, maybe I'm being a bit cynical. So let's go to like, you know a really famous scene where he sits at dinner with his wife. He, you know he comes to a restaurant. It's the anniversary meal. And he has a very one-sided conversation where his wife just sits there looking pissed off. Now, I will give the film something that it manages to trick you on the first watch that he's having dinner with her and you assume that it's probably marital you know, relationship issues. But from Bruce's point of view, come on, mate, he must know. You know, he's just turned up at a restaurant. He sort of says something like, well, I thought you were going to book the Italian restaurant. Well, you like, why didn't you? You should have checked with her before and you would have known. How did you know she was going to be there? You just turned up. Um, but yeah, you, you, you've still not figured out you're a ghost and she's not said anything to you for a year. Yeah, you've not got a meal in front of you. Yeah, you've not got a meal. And then also, like, the people in the, the restaurant, you know, if he, if he is a ghost, there's chairs moving about, man. They must be like, oh, no one's like, oh, there's a poltergeist, like, in the middle of the restaurant. So he's still not figured it out. I mean, oh, I don't know. I just couldn't be, couldn't be doing with it. There's also points where he just appears in rooms. So he's in, like, someone's house. Now, he's not fucking rang the doorbell and someone's let him in. He must have went through walls and went through doors. I think you'd know you're a ghost if that was the case. You know, maybe a little bit of a hint that you can put your arm through stuff. So, <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just an absolute nonsense. So, yeah, there's loads of holes in it. The, my one big, uh, on, the, on the flip side, the big positive is Hayley Joe Osment. He's undoubtedly... Like, that's one of the great performances by a kid that I can think of. You know, he's in tons of scenes. There's a lot of dialogue. And he, he manages to show some real skill and tact um, at the grand old age of 11 to, to, to act all the way through it. And, and clearly got a lot of plaudits for it. But, unfortunately, on rewatch, this film is a load of bobbins, basically. Watty? I think you're definitely right that this is it's one of those films I probably liken it to like a magician's trick it's like once you know how it's done it can never have the same effect it's probably the best yeah. way to describe it so having seen this before and watching it again you're almost you're looking out for the signs and it is obvious but the one thing I'd, I'd call out like I, I'm the same as you two I did not get this when I first watched it now granted it was 11 but it blindsided a lot of adults as well like that's pretty much the appeal of this film that people even though it's obvious people did not work out what was happening until it was revealed that that's what was happening. And there is a certain skill in that, in how that's been pulled together. But I do accept that, like, watching it again, yeah, it does seem obvious. I suppose we watched a a film maybe three or four episodes ago in Ghost, when uh, Patrick Swayze's ghost died, but he cottoned on right away. It is when you watch it, you're like, how does he not know it's... It's, it's so obvious the way it's played as well. It's like you pulled out some of the lines, but he gets asked by Haley Joel Osment's character, like, are you a good doctor? And Bruce Wells is like, I used to be. And he's just like randomly <laughs> sitting in the house. So it is, it's cheesy and it's daft, but I'm, I'm kind of okay with this. It was certainly he knows, he's, mate, he knows he's a good doctor because we all find out he's got some fucking weird award that gets read out just at the start of the film that says he's recognised for being... <laughs> I must say, like, I, I think this is a very deserving Best Picture nominee because it was a massive cultural hit. It did huge numbers at the box office. It did get a lot of critical acclaim. And I'm, I'm kind of okay with films that have such a big cultural impact being nominated. Like, not just needing to be the biggest film of the year. Like, nowadays it's just whatever superhero film's out. Not so much that, but this is the type of film that... I, I, like, I know my parents went to see this. They rarely go to the cinema. It's like that kind of film that gets your average punter decide, you know, I need to go to the cinema and see this, even though they probably only go two or three times a year. So it's not aged well, you're right, but I think that's because most people watch it back 
knowing what to expect. I would be interested, and I don't know if you would find someone, if um, you got like three people that had never seen it or heard anything about it to watch it for the first time, how they would find it. Would they find it dated? Would they be blindsided by it? Or would they cotton on? Not really sure, but yeah, it definitely doesn't hold much appeal on a rewatch, but uh, I think this film's, in terms of doing what it sets out to do, as in giving you a really good experience on your first time watch, which is, let's be honest, what most people do, I think it, it works. Yeah, I think because it's it's kind of like seeped into parody this film now, and obviously the twist is legendary. Like my wife's never seen this film; she had no interest in watching it with me because she knows that it's meant to be scary. But I was like, "Do you know what the twist is?" And she knows what the twist is because everybody's heard of this film, and everybody knows the twist is so legendary. So I think it's like one of the first films that we've watched that's genuine, like genre-defining. It's had like a massive impact on the industry. So when a film that like, 25 years later, people who haven't seen the film know about it and know what the main part of it is, still can cl- quote the clip that we heard. You know, I, it's, I was trying to think of other genre defining films and I was thinking, we talked about it early, but Toy Story, you know, introduces to Pixar and good CGI. Star Wars that we talked about kind of made sci-fi films cool. Even American Pie, genre defined in terms of its, you know, gross out teen comedies, they started making a load of it after. And the, the Sixth Sense, I think, is a, a cult film that's just got massive. And I don't think you can become that without being a good film. Uh, I think the storytelling in this is quite clever, something we hadn't really seen before. It's, it is one of those films that, you know, I'm sure there were people who, as soon as they came out of the cinema, went and got another ticket again and went straight back in. And I, I, perhaps disagree and i think that even when you do know what the twist is you do still get a lot out of it that you know bruce willis you know he's hardly like one of the great character actors of his time but he does a really good job in this i think Haley joel osmond is a bit of a fine because he's fantastic in this a shame that he's you know not gone on to bigger and better things but he's fantastic in this oh, he has gone on to bigger and better things if you're talking about what he looks like now <laughs> yeah he's certainly gone on to be becoming bigger yeah that's true <laughs> I get you've also got the question of, you know, is it scary? Let's not forget this is a ghost story. It's a, you would perhaps define it as horror. Yes, there are scary bits. I think there's creepy bits. You know, unlike, I don't know, let's say Scream or The Exorcist, the scary bits aren't the focus of this film. The focus is the drama. And I think that that's to the film's credit, that it wants to be more than just a scary movie. So, you know, I had not seen this film for 20 years, but when I watched it again, I thought, yeah, I can see why people still go to this film. I think it's a really good film. I think and the Bruce Willis point, I think he is, in the 90s, he's in a lot of good films. I don't think anyone's going to claim, even Willis himself, that he's the best actor around. But he is actually quite good at these everyman roles, I guess. He, he doesn't really overplay it here. It's quite subtle, his acting. He bounces off Billy Joel Osment well. And as you say, he's... I mean, that, that monologue that he delivers in the car for like a kid of his age, it's about three, four minutes long when he's talking about hearing his gran saying she was at her mum's dancing. It's just, like, he delivers it oh, so well. Yeah, he brings that, the melodrama to life. Kids in films tend to be, can be quite creepy, and he looks a bit creepy, does Sailor Jill. I know he's not one of the ghosts, but... It's his wee eyes, wee yeah, beady eyes. He, he does look, he's well cast because he does look creepy. He's passed the baton on to that kid that was in The Power of the Dog, Cody, what's it, Cody Smith oh, yeah, McPhee. He's, 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 he's a creepy, creepy kid. looking kid. He's no longer a kid as well, but he still <laughs> oh, he's looks like a creepy, creepy adult kid. now. Yeah. It looks even worse. It's like a creepy adult kid. 
after this one then it uh, it didn't win anything at the Oscars but it had six nominations so um, Best Picture, Best Director, Haley Joel Osment and Tony Collette had supporting actor and actress nominations, original screenplay and best film editing. And yeah, as uh, as you both mentioned, it has certainly um, punctuated the the cultural cachet people still talk about it today. Um, shame M Night Shyamalan has mostly made a big bag of shite since then, but yeah. this this one was good. Cool. Next up then, we are going to another film from 1999, of course, and that film is The Insider. About your work at the Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company, and in accordance with the force and effect of the temporary restraining order that has been entered against you by the court in the state of Kentucky. That means you don't talk. Mr. Modley, we have rights here. Oh, you've got rights and lefts. Ups and downs and middles. So what? You don't get to instruct anything around here. This is not North Carolina, not South Carolina, nor Kentucky. This is the sovereign state of Mississippi's proceeding. Wipe that smirk off your face! Dr. Wagon's deposition will be part of this record. And I'm going to take my witness's testimony whether the hell you like it or not! Answer the question, Doctor. Right, so anyone who listened to the previous pod when I introduced the films that we've been watching this year might recall that we <clears throat> we weren't really looking forward to this one because it's a film about corruption in the tobacco industry, which you know hardly sounds like a fucking nail biter. But before we get into it, <clears throat> yes, this film is directed by Michael Mann, who made Heat, which you know we all know is a belter. But I wanted to highlight that it was actually written by Eric Roth. Now, Eric Roth is somebody whose screenwriting we've discussed a few times on this pod, but I don't think we've mentioned him by name yet. So I do want to officially, and we haven't done this for a while, but I'd like to declare Eric Roth as an enemy of the pod. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, not only, not only did he write this, but he also wrote Munich, aka Spielberg's worst film. Oh, go eagle. <laughs> he also wrote, he also wrote Dune which, as we all know, was one of the most overrated, boring films of the last 12 months. So, sorry, Eric, but you are an official rubber-stamped enemy of the pod. Do, do you not mean an, an enemy of Mason? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, let He's, not, he's, not, he's not joined uh, Bobby Altman yet. We'll need to see it. <laughs> uh, right, The Insider. So this is pretty much a doubleheader with Al Pacino playing Lowell Bergman, who is a TV producer on 60 Minutes, which I guess is kind of like an American current affairs investigative show, a bit like Panorama is in the UK. Uh, and uh, Lowell wants to do an expose on Big Tobacco, who are suspected of intentionally making cigarettes more addictive. The whistleblower who's going to help them here is Jeffrey Wygand, who I do think as well is the first um, character we've come across to have Wigan in their name quite pleased about that it's about the only interesting part of this film Jeffrey Wigand Wigan uh, and Jeffrey's played by Russell Crowe Russell Crowe by the way who's in a bit of a um, golden purple patch at this point he's done he's doing Gladiator he's about to get his first Oscar um, for A Beautiful Mind he's he's doing pretty well Russell so this is a bit of a coup to have him in it and what follows is as you heard in that clip, some corporate and legal wrangling across the two and a half hour running time, leading to what I would say is a frankly dissatisfying conclusion with no real payoff. So we've seen a lot of these types of films, none more recent than actually Michael Clayton, which I think we watched in the last episode. 
long ago as it was. And that's of films that have shady corporations covering up dodgy dealings. The thing with The Insider is that because this is a true story, the filmmakers are compelled to stick to what actually happened, which, you know, as with legal discussions between corporations, it's a bit boring. At least with Michael Clayton, which I remind you, I also didn't enjoy. But at least with that, you can say, you know, okay, we've had 20 minutes of nothing, so let's blow up a car or let's make a guy walk around with 20 baguettes for a laugh. But (laughs) with this, you can't because you've got to stick to the facts and it suffers for it. I can only think that, you know, the reason why this film was made was because it had Michael Mann directing it, who was coming off the back of two belters, Last of the Mohicans and Heat. You've got Russell Crowe's, as I said, the actor of the moment. And you've got Al Pacino, you know, who's Al Pacino. I would say the directing is fine. You know, the acting is fine. Even Pacino manages to rein it in in this. But that simply doesn't detract from the fact that the storytelling isn't good enough. The runtime is too long and the drama doesn't hold the viewer's attention. So unfortunately, um, I'm going to blame Eric Ross because he's had um, another his hat trick of bad films for me on this podcast. But maybe I'm wrong and maybe you two thought differently. Uh, Bingham? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to sit on completely the opposite side of the fence. I actually really, really liked this film. No, you did not. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I, I surprised myself because I had the same thing. Turned, I, I went to flick it on telly. I seen the like cover and it's got like a monochrome kind of cover. Doesn't really tell. And I was like, oh no, this looks like another Michael Clayton. It's about the tobacco industry. And and I thought I was getting like the hoo-ha version of Pacino. And I don't know, man, I really, really liked it. You know, it's dialogue driven, but it was kind of like a slow burn thriller, like, but quite a gripping whistleblower story. I thought the direction was really good. You know, the first half an hour which set out the story, which granted could be quite boring. I don't know, I, I, it managed to really grip my attention, despite the fact the underlying story about the tobacco industry I really couldn't care less about. Probably the key bit to it was how it shows the pressure and the threats which get exerted on the whistleblower. So you've got the things from his former employer, the tobacco company, uh, but then also the pressure of the journalists putting a pressure on the ordinary guy to sort of go into the firing line to break the story. Uh, and I think you start to get under the skin of what is quite a complex moral decision that, that Crow's character has to make. Um, you know, does he take the easy option or does he do what's right and take on the big murky underworld of um, big industry? I did enjoy the email. In fairness, there was a good scene when he gets an e- his wife sees an email <laughs> that comes in like, you know, like the paperclip from Microsoft Office Word like, comes up. And it's like an email that's suddenly in red. You're like, and I don't, the emails used to be like this. Like the words would come on the screen one by one. And you just say, like, <laughs> like we will kill you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it comes on the screen like, we will kill you in red letters. I was thinking, come on, lads. Imagine preparing like a death threat email and uh, adding the animation <laughs> filter to it. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, see, I, I don't know, man. I, I really liked it. I mean, there was the bit where... Uh, and this is going to sound like I'm taking the piss, but like the tensions uh, sort of and the anxiety is reaping out of Crow and he goes into his back garden and, you know, shouts at a raccoon. <laughs> oh, yeah. but, but no, I genuinely, right, I, I, you get used both liked all the presents, men, and I wasn't as hot on it. And I actually think this is just as good as all the presents, men. Get out of town. <laughs> no chance. Why? Uh, 
It's definitely not as good as all the president's men, not by a long shot. Um, I, I, I thought this was okay. I think it's too long. That I, I know that's a, that's a classic Mason criticism, but yeah, I do it is. think it is. I do think if you shaved half an hour from this, had it under two hours, I think this would be a really tight, exciting thriller because I did actually like the story behind it, and I think it's well acted. As as you both said, Pacino, I was expecting a hoo ha like Pacino version, but he's actually quite understated here. Russell Crowe's in a bit of a hot streak. Um, and then it's got a really good cast of like character actors. So you heard in the the clip that we played there from the the court scenes, like like Bruce McGill, they, they've cast the film really well. Tobacco, corruption, whistleblowing. Yeah, on paper it doesn't sound the most exciting, but I do think it well written does bring out the paranoia well, and there's a genuine anger that you can feel at how some of these big corporations have been able to get away with things like this. I do um, see where you're coming from, Mason. That it can feel a little bit anticlimactic because. Yeah. I mean, spoiler alert, nothing really changed in the tobacco industry on the back of it. It's actually quite similar to, in some respects, to a film that's just came out recently called She Said, which is about the Harvey Weinstein sexual assaults and abuses, which is quite a good film, but it struggles to move out of the everyone discussing things in offices and because he's not actually been uh, convicted yet, it has this like ending that feels incomplete. I think there was a bit of that with this, maybe because I watched them similar time. Um, a couple of things that did make me laugh in it, um, and this is just a maybe a bit of a, a movie trope that we see from time to time. Russell Crowe's character, after having to leave his job, his family have to downgrade their house, nice. and they downgrade from <laughs> from a big house to another big house and it's like everybody's like oh like it's so sad for you it's terrible his house is fucking massive <laughs> it's like what's going on and it just made me laugh like everybody in American movies and TV shows lives in a massive house even yeah. folk that are meant to be poor <laughs> and it's like yeah I feel so sorry for you mate yeah, <laughs> yeah sorry so you say so you both said that you like this film yeah I liked it with caveats <laughs> I, I honestly really, really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fair enough, fair enough. We'll see if it gets nominated. If you get, if you choose it at the end. So, so your man, your man, Eric Roth. He's um, he's managed to avoid getting put into the enemy of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you, you need two votes out of three to end up in the enemy of the pod, pod group. So I'm afraid you're you're outnumbered on this one, Mason. He's not he's not going to be a friend, but he's not an enemy. Although he might be, I've just had a look at some of the other films he's wrote, and there's one that I absolutely hate that we'll watch at some point. So <laughs> he, he might be joining the enemy group then, but I'll, I'll wait till we get to that particular. Oh, I see, I'm, yeah, I'm just looking at him now. I see he also he has also written the second Dune. I can't wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> so this had uh, seven nominations but zero wins. Picture director Crow for best actor, best adapted screenplay, cinematography, film editing, and best sound right third film coming up next and that film is the cider house rules and collecting himself for a spring jumped the dead man's shoulders missing his aim he fell into a ditch turning completely over as he went and striking his head against a stone dashed out his brains that is the end of the chapter (laughs) That's it. Till tomorrow. Good night, you princes of Maine, you kings of New England. 
So this is The Cider House Rules. Um, it's a film directed by a director called Lassie Hallstrom, who Swedish director who made his name directing ABBA music videos. And a quick check of his filmography suggests that he's directed 25 films in his career. Um, and as far as I can tell, um, most of them are a bag of shite, uh, <laughs> including this one. Um, his only good film that I have seen is What's Eating Gilbert Grape, which is brilliant. But, I mean, some of his recent films which are even worse than this, include such brilliant films as A Dog's Purpose, Dear John, <laughs> Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, which I actually went to the cinema to see, and uh, we'll, we'll see him again <laughs> when we do Chocolat, which I can't really remember, to be fair. But anyway, this film. This film also has the double badness that the lead actor in it is Toby Maguire, who, as we've discussed before, is a really bland presence, and God knows how he was about in so much at this time. But hey-ho... Anyway, let's try and uh, be fair to the film first. I may be on my own with that opinion. The, the film takes place in uh, a kind of like World War II era, probably just after the war. And it follows a character called Homer Wells, who is played by Toby Maguire. He lives in a orphanage in Maine who is run by a kindly doctor, Dr. Larch, who is played by Michael Caine. And we just heard him there giving his... I guess, storytelling or, or sermon that he um, gives to the kids every night. And basically it follows Homer, his time at the orphanage, as he works with Dr. Larch. He's a little bit older than the other kids. Weirdly, they uh, perform ad- abortions at the, the orphanage, so he gets involved in that, trained off uh, Michael Caine's character. But then he eventually leaves the orphanage and um, ends up finding work on a cider farm after bumping into a couple played by Charlize Theron and Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd goes off to war, he uh, falls in love with Charlize Theron and starts to have an affair with her and then uh, also weirdly on the the cider farm one of the farm workers becomes pregnant by her own father and he performs an abortion with the help of the father who had just raped his daughter. This is a really fucking weird film and it's particularly (laughs) weird because it plays it all as quite sentimental and nice and melodramatic which I think really cuts against the fact that it's got ancestral rape in it. <laughs> it has Homer, Toby Maguire's character, portrayed as nice yet. He's uh, having an affair with a guy who's gone off to war and became disabled as a result. I, I just found this incredibly bizarre. But I, I, it's one of those films I probably knew from the opening bars that I wasn't going to really like it because from the opening bars of Rachel Portman's score, you can tell it's going to be a schmaltzy, sentimental movie. That's okay. Some of those films can connect with me. There's another film that's coming up that I think you could argue is quite sentimental and to a point schmaltzy, but works for me in a different way. I suppose one of the, the reasons that I, I struggled with this beyond what I've, I've said already is I just it doesn't really go anywhere. So I found uh, I dug out my, my man Roger Ebert and he's got a good quote about this, which um, as, as often sums up our views on it, or certainly my views in this case. It says, the story touches many themes, lingers with some of them, moves on and arrives at nowhere in particular, which I think is a, a good summation of this. I mean, Michael Caine won an Oscar for this. I guess he's he's quite good in it. Definitely strikes me as one of those, I will give an Oscar to someone that's maybe deserved one for previous work, like Jaws the Revenge, obviously. But no, I just I can't get on board with this film at all. I really, really did not like this. This is up there with the worst films that we've watched in this podcast, oh. in my opinion. So, do you agree with me or do you not? I'll, I'll go to you, Mason, first. You, you seem to be maybe disagreeing with me here. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I've quite made up my mind about this film yet. I want that hand, 
I think it is far too saccharine and, you know, eye-rollingly melodramatic. But then, as you've said, on the other hand, it does deal with some pretty heavy themes. I think it does have good performances in it. Michael Caine, I think, is deserving of a Best Supporting Actor. Certainly nomination, it's arguable whether or not he deserved to win, but, you know, it's not as though people would kick off about him winning. And I think you do feel satisfied at the end. I think it's got a a well-rounded conclusion. It's worth noting, I think, that this film is rare in that it's it's an American film that's got abortion at the centre of it, and it's got a bit of a pro-choice stance. Now, that's something that's controversial now in America, you know, never mind 25 years ago. And, uh, you know, to the extent I read that this film had an 18 certificate in Ireland because it encouraged like liberal views on abortion. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like his, uh, his other, uh, films. It's not it's completely sickly sweet. You know, it, it is a little bit hard hitting. I also looked up Lassie Halstrom, the director's uh, other work and he, He's, he's randomly heavy on dog films. You mentioned one of them. <laughs> There's three. <laughs> he, he's made three dog films. But what My Life as a Dog, which sounds interesting, Hatchy a Dog's Tale and A Dog's Purpose. My, my oh, Life as a Dog is um, an adaptation of a, a classic award-winning book called Fluke. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> it's not really. Hatchy made me laugh so uh, when you mentioned that because I seen that, I think I was on a, like, a little bus through like the mountains in Mexico and it was all in like Spanish and I was just watching like what the fuck is this film about <laughs> a dog like sitting outside a train station for ages it's, it's based on a genuinely that is uh, I I've not seen the film it's based on a true story of a Japanese yeah. dog that used to sit outside Shibuya train station every day back in the 20s this this guy loves his dogs um, look if, if I was pushed I would say that I, I I lean towards the I enjoyed this film I'm going to say I appreciate that I'm, you know, being perhaps a bit generous towards it, but it reminded me in parts of maybe Goodwill Hunting or Dead Poet Society, in that what? you've got like a you've got like a kindly older man teaching life lessons to troubled youngsters. That's my that's my link, and you know it's not as good as those, but you know I, I got swept up about by it a little bit. Yeah, I'm gonna have to come down. And, I mean, it's still better than the fucking insider. <laughs> Where you go? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> Honestly, that clip we just played. Tells you all you know about this film. It, 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 this film is worse than Michael Caine's attempt at a Southern, Southern American accent. <laughs> <laughs> Has he ever played anyone bar a Brit in any other film from, apart from this? And I, you know, he's a cockney for God's sake. He, he, oh, th- this film was honestly, th- this is easily one of the worst we've watched. I, I really, really struggled with this. And it is a prime example of a film that has been put on a pedestal just because of its central topic, which is abortion. Like, there is no way the judges sat sat and watched this and thought, you know what? Like, this is worth it. I mean, this, I almost feel like they could have said, this is an abortion film, start it about abortion, then have two hours of a film of just a dog walking around the garden doing a shit after shit after shit into the grass and it would still get voted for Best Pitch nominee. That, that's how bad this film was. It was Also, awful. Lassie Hellstrom, his ears would have pricked up if they could have said <laughs> that there was going to be a dog in it. Even like... <laughs> yeah, I was getting big Golden Pawn vibes from it, uh, oh, which yeah. partly is due to the style, you know, that horrible score narration. Then, then even, like, it gets just worse and worse. You get like Toby Maguire and you're like, oh my God, I've got to put up with this. No pacing, no character development, and just a really muddled story, and and some really just random stuff. Me, um, like what that you particularly picked out with the incest. 
um, and rapey sort of side to it. So yeah, this was just garbage, like really oh. bad. It is weird that there's two. I mean, I know you two preferred The Insider, but there are way better films than this and The Insider that got released this year. It's mental that these two. Got yeah, but I think that if, in a way it's like. I would say, I mean, The Sixth Sense, for example, you've, you've got two films this year that have quite strong supernatural elements. That's rare for the Oscars. Mm. This is very conventional type of family drama, although you're right, it is a family drama with some quite dark subjects in it. I, I'm just laughing. I'm, I'm on the Wikipedia page as we speak, and uh, Ireland's film censor, it was it's called Seamus Smith. Seamus <laughs> so was not... Uh, sure, we're not having this, lads. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the Father Ted scene when they're like, down with this sort of thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they don't know what they're protesting against. Uh, I mean, this did actually win two Oscars, which is more than can be said for the last two. Seven nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Michael Caine for Supporting Actor, which it won. It won Best Adapted Screenplay, somehow. Best Art Direction, Best Film Editing, and Best Original Score. Um, so best Original Score? Yeah, the score is shy. Nominated, didn't win. Oh, nominated, okay. But still, <laughs> I mean... Bloody hell. This was, a, this was a good year. Like, how's this getting nominated? Things like Magnolia, being John Malkovich, Fight Club, all that. Ah, anyway, right, two films to go. We're going to go to The Green Mile. I'm tired, boss. Tired of being on the road, lonely as a sparrow in the rain. I'm tired of never having me a buddy to be with, to tell me where we's going to, coming from, or why. Mostly I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. I'm tired of all the pain I feel in here in the world every day. There's too much of it. It's like pieces of glass in my head all the time. Can you understand? Yes, John, I think I can. So, I feel like this film, along with The Sixth Sense, is another that seeped into the public consciousness, even that even in the even people who don't watch a lot of movies or know much about film, you know, they seem to they tend to have seen the Green Mile, and I had too. Um, I think I'd watched this film maybe twice beforehand, albeit not for probably twenty years. But I felt like if somebody asked me to detail the plot, I'd have been able to tell them specifics about it. So, you know, if I can remember a film from twenty years ago and remember specific scenes, it must be a good film, right? Well, before I go into it, let's just first of all recap on the plot. So Tom Hanks plays Paul Edgecombe, who's a prison guard on death row in 1935. And it's his role to supervise the prisoners before they walk the Green Mile of the title, which is the route from their cell to the room that contains the electric chair where they will be executed. Death Row is home to some colourful characters, including Edouard Delacroix, who's a simple man who befriends a mouse uh, called Mr Jingles. Uh, you've got Wild Bill Wharton, who's a, a loud and disruptive murderer who, you know, taunts the other prisoners and, and taunts the guards. I should probably mention as well here, you know, a key guard who is Percy Wetmore, who is, you know, a sadistic man who's got his job through nepotism and who is hated by both the guards and the inmates. Uh, and, you know, the story gives each of these characters room to breathe. They all get their own character arcs and storylines, but all of them are tied together by 
new inmate, John Coffey, who we heard in the clip. John Coffey has been convicted of killing two children, and he is a physically imposing man, yet he is uh, mentally meek. Now, at this point, I'm going to mention the film's writer and director, who is Frank Darabont, who you'll know as the director of The Shawshank Redemption, and who is making this film straight after that one. So now, you know, like Shawshank, this film is based on a novel by the King of Horror, Stephen King. So that means, unfortunately, that although I didn't mention it when giving you the plot details, there is a supernatural element to this film, and that comes in the form of John Coffey, and who, and there's no other way of saying it, is magic. And by magic, I mean that, you know, he's got healing powers ranging from, you know, reincarnation to curing cancer to, you know, randomly enabling Tom Hanks's character to shag his wife four times in a night, which <laughs> comes a bit out of the flu. But, you know, fair enough. Useful healing skill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, now, look, I don't think this is a bad film. I, you know, I would even say, you know, it's, it's a good watch, but the fact that it's made by Darabont, who, you know, in my opinion, is prone to straying into melodrama and perhaps a little bit of indulgence, I don't think it's as hard-hitting as it could be. Ultimately, this is a tale of a man who's been executed for a crime he did not commit, likely because of his race, although that's not explored, except for, you know, giving John Coffey almost every one of the so-called magical Negro stereotypes in the book. And yet, you know, Darmont for me, he's too scared to commit to that, which means we do get, you know, we get scenes of like a mouse doing tricks, quite literally followed by a man getting burnt to death. You know, I thought the supernatural element was frankly bizarre. So bizarre that they don't really bother explaining it. You know, the viewer is just supposed to accept that John Coffey's got Christ-like powers, but don't bother questioning how or why. I think the characters are all a bit two-dimensional. You know, are we really to believe that, like, death row guards in the 1930s America would be, like, practically saints, you know, and be so appalled when they find that one of the guards is a bit mean? I don't, you know, I know we don't, we don't find out what crime Delacroix did so that we feel bad when he dies, but because he was, you know, kind to a mouse, but he could have been a rapist. <laughs> He's on death row. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm but sorry. He, he was actually, so in the book, he was oh, a rapist and he murdered He's a rapist. Yeah, and he said, "But he's nice to a mouse, mate." So you know, <laughs> we're back to Stuart Little again. Well, um, you know, I'm sorry. I, I started by saying that I don't think this is a bad film, but the more I talk about it, the more I think it might be. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a bit more cynical, but uh, I remember this film 20 years ago being a bit of a classic. And rewatching it, I don't think it is. Bingham, what do you think? Yeah, you actually summed up probably all my thoughts, to be honest, which uh, makes a change because suddenly you've been completely off the off the um, off the hem <laughs> sheet for the, the previous ones. Yeah, I actually think it it's been tricky on rewatch. I I think when I watched it like around about ninety nine, I can't remember when I first seen it. I probably liked it a little bit more for a lot of the reason. And and, and on rewatch, I just think it's not anywhere near as good a film as what I thought it was. I think. You could probably got the main things that I agree with. I think the style, it's got such a lack of nuance. It's almost like a remake of Forrest Gump, but about mm. like about this story. And I'm not just saying that because Tom Hanks is in it. It's just the way it's shot, the dialogue, the way the story's told. You know, you've got the really obvious antagonist in Percy, who you know, you all we all hate. Uh, you, you know, he's like the nastiest warden, but we don't ever really find out why he's that. It's like an absolute arsehole. Uh, the, to the extent that they 
I was reading, they gave him the squeakiest shoes so that it was another annoying character trait that makes the viewer hate him. Oh, so in your face. And, and like you say, that supernatural element, oh, it's, it's just fuck, it's just nonsense. Like, tonally, it remo- like totally moves the film away from where I want it to go. I want it to be a bit of a, like, a more of a deep psychological thriller. You know, it has that with the element of violence, which is quite shocking at points. But then you've just got this, like, Oscar bait, Forrest Gump, like, supernatural element. And let's be honest, they're fucking ridiculous. Because if I was John Coffey, I wouldn't be crying in my wee cell, touching the guy's knob to flame and get rid of... <laughs> to, to sort out his bloody traction, urinary, whatever disease it is. Yeah, he sorts um, out his bladder, but at the same time, he also makes him a horny bastard. <laughs> I know. I'd be walking about like Jesus, mate. I'd be like, "Don't electrocute me. Don't kill me, man." Like, I'll just sort hunters of tumors and shit. You just even mention it. You're like, "Fuck it, uh, I deserve it." Get, you know, I'll start crying and look a bit sweaty for the next ninety minutes while you electrocute the shit out of me. Ah, uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm on the same page. I just don't really think this is a particularly good film. The the one, I know. In fact, I'll leave. But I've got one observation. But what? I think what well, I think you quite like this one. Yeah, I, I do like this film. Yeah, uh, I, I I don't recommend watching it hungover when you're already feeling a little bit fragile. But this is a film that does uh, does get the old waterworks going for me at least. I I can kind of see where you're both coming from. To be honest, I mean it's a while since I've watched it. I don't think it resonated as strongly as um, it had when I'd first seen it, and I've I've probably seen it maybe. I've seen it at least three times anyway over the years. Probably didn't hit quite as hard as uh, it did the first couple of times for me. I don't think you're wrong in what you're you're saying. It is quite a an unsubtle movie. It plays out in a fairly obvious way. Conforms to stereotypes. The characters are quite tropes like they're either good or evil. There's not really much in between. But as a, I mean, it's based on a Stephen King novel. I don't know how much it veers from the the book. I've never actually read it, but I think it is a. It's very spiritual, like there's a, a kind of theory that he is based on Jesus Christ reincarnated, which you can kind of yeah. see with that binary good and evil viewpoint. I think when it does work, I actually think, and this is a, a, a rare bit of praise for, for this podcast, um, maybe you two will disagree given you didn't like it, I actually think it earns its length and I think it needs to be this long because I think the passage of time is a really important theme in it and I don't think you would get that if this was a film under two hours. It's not to say every scene works perfectly but I think that it just shows the the length of time that's spent in death row the, how much that can affect people, both the guards and the, the people that are in there. Yeah, I mean, I think the performances are really good. Like Michael Clark Duncan uh, is, I, I mean, he's, I think, superb in this um, to be honest. I think he kind of breaks your heart and some of the, the sequences he's in. Tom Hanks, just like innate likability, comes across well. So, I mean, I, I do like it. I think it's one of those films that it is full of grand gestures. It's so committed fully that I felt, for me at least, it was taken beyond the point of caring that it's a melodrama. It just commits to it. I don't think it's maybe aged as well as something like Shawshank has, which continues to, have, I think, resonate really strongly with a lot of people. Maybe this one, not quite so much. Particularly the race element that you touched on, Mason. But mm. I, I, it's still a film that I've, I enjoy quite a lot. I saw that um, Michael Clark Duncan wasn't the first choice for this. Did you, did you see who was? Uh, no, but I'm intrigued now. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> <laughs> so they were basically, they just wanted a big... 
A, a very tall black man. Yeah, pretty much. Stru- and then you think, well, Shaquille O'Neal, obviously. <laughs> that would have been very weird. <laughs> yeah. The the other observation I had on it was seeing that we. I know it's a mouse man, but seeing that we Mister Jangles run about just made me think of my pet Maurice. Rest in peace, my pet rat. <laughs> you see, it, 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 well, we find out at the end of the film that Mister Jangles is now like a hundred year old mouse. Yeah, he's still he's. Yeah. I mean, maybe, mental. maybe, maybe Maurice is still alive. Maybe, yeah. Uh, you know that cancer that seen him get put into a shoebox and then see him get buried next to what river is that river here? Uh, the whatever one it is goes through Leeds. Um, so maybe, maybe he's maybe he came out of that box, did a dini effort, and he's still running about now. Uh, I will say for this as well. For all, it's quite a melodramatic movie at that. That sequence with Dale's execution is one of the most horrific things I've oh, seen yeah, on screen. Yeah. That is absolutely awful. <laughs> ah, that, that bit. Oh, God, it's horrible. And I, I, I take your point, Mason. Yes, he's not a nice man by any stretch of the imagination, but still, <laughs> like, he does, like, does anyone deserve to die in that way? Maybe they do. That's, a, that's an argument about capital punishment, I suppose. Yeah, that's a weird feel, because, like, at one point you think, well, surely you just turn the electri- turn the chair off, wet the bloody sponge, and pop it back on his head. Why didn't they do? And, but I don't surely he's, he's already got the electric currents through. So if you go near him with sh- a wet sponge, right. you can just, just, just chuck it off. <laughs> shoot him then, just shoot him. I mean, to be honest, that is probably what you should do in that example. Yeah, just, yeah. I mean, oh, electric hey, does anyone know if it's actually is it realistic? Is that? I'd never even heard of that, and and to be honest, I, he, he turns into like a fucking fireball. <laughs> it can't, it can't be right. I know that it is the only bit that I know it is definitely true that like for conduction reasons, then you would put like a weight sponge in your head. But I don't know if it would be as bad as that if you didn't didn't do that. I'd mm-hmm. probably prefer not to find out. Then <laughs> Denny State still have the electric chair. I don't think they do. Sure. I, know that, I know lots still have uh, capital punishment, but they've generally phased out that particular method. Mm. <laughs> One to Google later, some light, light reading. <laughs> so, so this had zero wins but four nominations. Um, best Picture, Michael Clark Duncan for Best Supporting Actor, Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound. So only one of the films so far has actually won any of the awards, but I did mention earlier that The Matrix had, had picked up a... Uh, four of them actually, which is uh, is quite a lot for a film not nominated for Best Picture. One film to go then. This year's winner, American Beauty. Well, you have a car. Oh, well, that's great. That's great. Because Janie's thinking about getting a car too soon, aren't you? Honey? Dad, Mom's waiting for you. Well, it was very nice meeting you, Angela. Any friend of Janie's is a friend of mine. Well, I'll be seeing you around then. Could he be any more pathetic? I think it's sweet. And I think he and your mother have not had sex in a long time. So, so before I talk about American Beauty, just a, a question for our father-to-be on the, the pod, Mr. Scott Bingham. Do you think you will ever have a shite dad pattern as that in future years? Most definitely not. <laughs> You're going to be the cool dad. Oh, yeah. 
Good stuff. So, uh, it's American Beauty then. I think most people will know about this film. Clearly, there is a, an element that probably overshadows it a little bit now, which is the fact that its leading man and best actor winner, Kevin Spacey, has absolutely torpedoed his career by being a bit of a sex abuser. Has he been convicted? I'm not sure we can say that, but I mean, it's. Yeah, he, he is, right? <laughs> he's certainly been cancelled. He's, he's been cancelled, right? Okay, yeah. so we'll, we'll, we'll stick with that for legal reasons yeah. in case. Uh, Case Space is so bored that he's listening to our podcast. Um, so the premise of American Beauty is about a middle-aged man going through a midlife crisis, basically. And uh, as part of that midlife crisis, he develops an infatuation for his teenage daughter's friend, who you heard on the clip there. Um, she's played by Mina Savari, who was also an American Pie this year, so quite a big year for that particular actress. And whilst he's also becoming disillusioned with his life and his existence, you also see the same happening to his wife and to his daughter. So this whole family that lives in suburban America, on the face of it, they've got a happy life, nice house, nice jobs, but underneath they're all really unhappy and they go and explore that unhappiness in different ways. This is a, a film that's written by a guy called Alan Ball, who some might know as the screenwriter for the HBO TV series Six Feet Under, which I would say covers several themes, albeit with a darker setting of a funeral home. It's quite a funny film. A great scene was a passive-aggressive dinner where Annette Benning, who is also great in this, and uh, and Kevin Spacey are shouting at each other across that. And I think it does, it really captures the mundanity of middle-class suburbia quite well and how that can be quite a whole existence once you settle into it. Kevin Spacey in this is incredibly good. It's hard to walk past the parallels between the story and real-life allegations against Spacey. But if we view Lester Burnham purely from an acting perspective, it, I think it's a terrific performance from a terrific actor, really good ensemble. Um, I mean, this is a, a film that I would say I, I've had a lot of time for really enjoyed over the years. Having watched it again, I'm not sure it's aged massively well. That's not to say I didn't enjoy it. still enjoy it, still find it quite funny. I still think the underlying themes of boredom and suburbia has still a lot of relevance. But I do think some of the sexual politics, obviously coloured, of course, by Spacey's real life or rumoured real life behaviour, do look a little bit different through a modern lens. But overall, I do think this is a, it's a pretty pretty enjoyable film. Very interested to see what you folks think. So we'll, we'll go to you first, Bingham. Yeah, th- this film just isn't getting made today. I would say when you, you touch on that, point I, I just can't you just would not get away with it um nowadays um i i agree i'm probably in the same place as you to be honest um you know it's a film about dysfunctional people you know there's loads of the, the cards are quite complicated as well um and it's, it's just got a lot of layers to it uh and it is quite funny at points and like you say, the acting performances are, are great. It's shot really nicely as well. And I don't know, I'm just, yeah, people all know I'm an absolute sucker for films in here that have got like that sad, kind of depressed, you know, a man going through like a midlife crisis. I'm like, oh, fucking brilliant, man. Give me more of that. And it, th- th- this is one of the best examples of it. Um, and it, it was like what I was saying earlier that it's one of those films where it depicts, you, you naturally, you would think, a guy with a well-paid job should be enjoying his life, but actually he's just hating it and he's a creative, you know, he wants to become a, like, listen to, spend all day listening to classic rock, drive a muscle car 
and um, <laughs> and take a fancy for girls that are like half his age, which, to be honest, in 1999 might have been what a lot of guys did when they fantasised over Britney Spears when she was like 17 or 18. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm just in the same the same place. I, I'm not sure it's like brilliant. The, my one slight thing I didn't like about it and it really started to piss me off was um, his wife. I know she's meant to be like over the top, but she, she's really, really hammy. Uh, and it started to irritate me, but it's, I suppose it's a hammy film, isn't it? See, just before you, you come in, Mason, I think the one thing I think interesting you said about it's about dysfunctional people. They are dysfunctional, but I think why it so resonates or it works is because they're dysfunctional in quite a realistic way. Like, they're not... Yeah. Like, you could see like, anybody could become that dysfunctional quite easily. I don't think it's like they're eh, properly out there as such. Mm. Yeah, I, I think this is... I would say this is a proper film. You know, it's clever, well-performed. I thought the script's good. It's sexy, it's fully rounded, it fleshes out its characters. It's a little bit pretentious, but only just to the extent that it gets Oscar voters interested. And yes, you're right in what you're saying, that you can view this film through a 2022 lens very differently. You know, like you said, you've got Kevin Spacey playing a pervy man effectively preying on a teenager, and we now know that, you know, Kevin was doing that in real life too. There's also the argument that the theme is uncomfortable, you know, old man and teenage girl, but I, I think that's missing the point. You know, the lust of Spacey's character is just one element of this film, which I think is more about boredom. You know, Spacey's bored with his suburban life. Uh, Annette Bennings Carolyn is unfulfilled. Uh, the daughter Jane wishes she had a friend's sex appeal and confidence, but then Angela, the friend itself, you know, she's actually, you find out later, putting on a front. So even the supporting characters have got that sense of misery. Everyone's got a facade. The neighbours, exactly the same thing. Um, and I think it's to that, to the film's credit that you could easily make any of the supporting characters the main character. And I think the film would still be as interesting. So I, I really like this film. I saw that when I was looking into it, that it was voted as one of the 20 most overrated films of all time. What? Which, yeah. yeah. Where, where was that from though? Oh, I, I, just, I mean, that's surely that's down more to, to Kevin Spacey yeah, rather than the film Spacey itself. Film. Like, I, I wouldn't say that this is a film that, I mean, people remember it as like a good film, but it's not, it's never come in like top 10 of all time type no, this, no. which, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's a weird, because I, I, when I was looking at this list of films, I'd heard of all of them, I'd seen them all, I was thinking, oh yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing this again. But actually watching them all, not a classic year. A lot yeah, of the, all the best films from 1999 aren't on this list. I don't think you're too wrong with that, to be mm. honest. It's a good year in general, but certainly a couple of films this year that I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had nominated personally. I'm sure you folks are the same. Maybe different ones, though. So, yeah, so American Beauty, this was the, the big winner, unsurprisingly, given nothing else seemed to pick up any awards. Won five Oscars for Best Picture, Best Director. Kevin Spacey won Best Actor. I think he's won two Best Actor nominations. Certainly won Did he win one. for The Usual Suspects? He's definitely won two. I feel like the other one was supporting now, maybe. You may be right, yeah. So he's won Best Supporting Actor... For the usual suspects, yeah. you are correct. He is good at that, in fairness. Best Original Screenplay and Best Cinematography um, was also nominated for Film Editing, Original Score and um, Best Actress for Annette Bening. So clearly the, the big winner of the evening. So that brings us to the end of uh, 1999. And I think this could be quite an open one for once, actually, mm -hmm. um, in terms of what our favourites are going to be. So let's uh, let's go and 
surname alphabetical order. We'll start with you, Bingham. What's what's your winner this year? Right, uh, right. This is going to provoke a ridiculous reaction inside her. Get. <laughs> oh, and I'm genuinely not joking. It's the one when I watched this, uh, watched these again, that I enjoyed the most. No. I, 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 I was quite quite tempted to say America Beauty because I think it was the closest. The other ones, yeah, inside her. Well, well. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, do you know what? I'm going to give it to the Sixth Sense. I thought you were going to say the side show. No, no, no. <laughs> I think American Beauty, you know, it's a worthy winner, but it's not stood the test. Well, have any of them stood the test of time? I don't think they have, but oh, let's give it to the Sixth Sense. Well, I'll, um, I'll go for American Beauty. I do think it is the best one this year. There's a couple, couple other pretty decent films, but oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's not as classic a year as uh, maybe anticipated going into it. Not often we all go different either, so... Yeah, I know, yeah. I need to add that to the stats. <laughs> <laughs> a rare year. So, uh, a little bit of uh, admin. So, Bingham, you're picking up, picking us next. Uh, the Oscar nominations for 2023, well, nominating the 2022 films, are announced on the 12th of February or so, so we might be able to squeeze another another episode in just prior to that. So, Bingham, where are you going to take us next? Yeah, so we've had a couple of uh, recent years, so we've got to delve back into history, which I seem to be the one who always does this. So we're going back to 1980. So we are having another visit with Scorsese and uh, De Niro when we go to the biographical boxing film Raging Bull. Moving on from that film about a despicable man, uh, we go to one directed by a despicable man, allegedly. Uh, so we've got Roman Polanski's Tess, which is a drama adaptation of the Tom Hardy novel Tess of the Ubervilles. Uh, I must admit, I read a little bit about this and um, I'd never heard of it, nor could I describe it in 30 seconds. So, <laughs> if that's not wet your appetite enough, Despicable Men, or Man, we go to Very Strange Men and David Lynch's Elephant Man, oh. uh, which is another bio- biographical uh, drama about a severely deformed lad. Then from strange men to influential <laughs> women, <laughs> we go to the coal miner's daughter, uh, which doesn't sound very good, but it's a bag. Another bag. My mum. It's set in wagon. It could be. Uh, it could be. It's uh, well, unless your well, unless your mum's uh, Loretta Lynn, the one of the most oh, famous no. country singers of all time. And then we finish, uh, after being to Despicable Men, uh, Influential Women, etc., we go to finish with just Ordinary People, uh, quite literally a film called Ordinary People, which was Rob Redford's first in the director's chair. Oh. Good stuff. I'm just having a wee look. I've, I've seen a couple of these before, but not all of them. Uh, I can see that Tess is going to be a belter. It is over three, three hours long. Fucking hell. <laughs> So it takes place in Thomas Hardy's Wessex during the 1880s, so a three-hour-long period drama sounds right up our street. Yeah. Not, not to prejudge, we should not prejudge. But There's got to be a comic connection to someone in that film. There's got to be. Uh, I bet there will be. Yeah, I'm just looking at the names. It just sounds like British character actors. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody. So there's bound to be someone from that. Uh, good stuff. So yeah, we'll, we'll reconvene at some point in the new year to talk through all of these films. Thank you all for listening. Give us a wee, wee share or a, a like and we welcome your questions as always and we'll wish you all a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. Yeah, cheers. Merry Christmas. Cheers. See you all soon. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>